0: My best friend in high school, uh, his name is Nate. I didn't know him in eighth grade. Well, I knew him from a distance. He was an acquaintance, but I preferred to keep that distance because from everything I could tell, he was a narcissistic, completely self-centered jerk face. At least that was my first impression of him. And this is not a story about how sometimes first impressions are wrong. Uh, By his own admission, that's who he was. So, to my shock and surprise, ninth grade rolls around. It's the beginning of the year and we're at you at the Pole, which is when Christian students gather around their flagpole, pray for their school, pray for each other. And there's Nate reading from the book of Ephesians and admonishing us to keep the faith and to be strong in the Lord. And I'm flabbergasted. My jaw is on the floor. And I go to him afterwards and say, hey, man, what happened to you? He said, well, a friend of mine last spring invited me to youth group. I started coming and and I heard the gospel, and I repented. I'm a Christian. I read the Bible now, and that started our friendship. We're still friends. In fact, I just talked to him a few days ago to ask permission to call him a narcissistic jerk face. I won't tell you whether or not he granted the permission, but I... So whether this is the first time you've heard those words, repent and believe the gospel, whether it's the hundredth time, the message this morning is for you. My message is really nothing other than Jesus' message, that today God is here in our midst. Turn to him and believe that he is good and that he has good for you. That's the message. It's a call to humble ourselves before our God, that we might have friendship with him. To repent is to turn around and discover a treasure that we did not know we had lost. To repent is to turn around and discover a treasure that we did not know we had lost. Let's turn to the passage. Um, Today, I'm going to talk very simply about uh, what is this treasure that we've discovered and then what does that turning mean? What does it look like? Uh, But first, let's head to the passage in in Mark chapter 1. In your Bibles or in your bulletins, there. And we're going to focus pretty much on verses 14 and 15 because they're so packed. After John was arrested, Jesus went all throughout Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. These were Jesus' first words in the book of Mark, the beginning of his ministry, sums up pretty much everything of what he is going to do in the rest of the book of Mark. If you think about it musically, it's like theme and variations, where at the solo, at the beginning, the instrument will play the melody, and then the variations to follow will be just variations on that melody. His call to repent and believe the gospel is the heart of his message. It's a, it's a message that he probably preached many times, not just once. Uh, probably Peter and and. Andrew and James and John heard the message maybe even several times before they even saw the Lord coming to them on the seashore, calling them to follow him. So he preached it many times, uh, and you might be thinking, wow, uh, no wonder he was a popular preacher. His sermon was like 30 seconds long. (laughs) Tall, skinny guy, take note. Uh, Likely he unpacked it. But it is the essence, it's the nugget of of what he came to proclaim. And by calling the people to repent, he stands himself right in line with the succession of Hebrew prophets, of whom he is the last and the final and the greatest. Because God sent the prophets to his people Israel, century upon century, to call them back to himself. In fact, if you just flip through the prophets, it doesn't take long to see the words return return. Turn back. In fact, our Old Testament reading this morning was one such example. Jeremiah 3. Return, O faithless ones, and I will heal your faithlessness. Return. You won't see repent. The the language the prophets use is return. But you see it everywhere. It's one of the most, if not the most, prominent themes throughout the prophets. So we're going to seek to understand that that word repentance, turning. But before we do that, as I mentioned... Let's talk about, well, what is this treasure? What is the treasure that we are turning towards? It says, gospel. Twice it appears in these two verses. First, the narrator says Jesus is proclaiming the gospel. Then Jesus himself says, I'm calling you to the gospel. At the beginning of the book of Mark, the very first verse is, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it literally means good news. And though it is obvious, we cannot overlook the fact that Jesus came to bring us good news. If I were to ask you, what's the opposite of good news, what would you say? I'd say bad news, wouldn't you? You'd be wrong, though. The opposite of good news is evil news. In our common usage of the word good, it's a very weak word in our usage. It means, eh, so so. Like, how was the movie last night? That eh, was good. I'd see it once, but probably wouldn't buy it. And that's a different usage from the biblical framework for good. In the biblical framework, good is opposite of evil. It is the highest. It is the best. In fact, I would say the most important things that we need to understand about God is that he is love, that he is holy, and that he is good. It's the good that was there in the morning of creation when God looked at all he'd made and said, it's good. He's not saying, yeah, it's all right. Could have done better, I guess. No, it is the highest And the best. And it is the opposite of evil. And Jesus is marching through Galilee proclaiming good news because he has come to displace the evil news. Up until he came, that was our story, the evil news. If we remember the Eucharistic liturgy, it says when we had fallen into sin and become subject to evil and death, subject, like subjects to the crown. Only we aren't subjects to a king and a queen. We're subjects, slaves to evil and to death. And we need a savior. We need a champion. We need someone who can set us free. My three year old girls, uh, recently they were given a book by, by some friends about Saint George and the Dragon. And so they, they've been reading the, the book, enjoying it, and playing Saint George Killing the Dragon. Caroline is always Una, the princess, who goes out in search of St. George. Teresa is St. George, and guess who gets to be the dragon? It's a little bit better than when they're playing Adam and Eve, and I have to be Satan. Although, <laughs> sometimes they make me Jesus, and I, I don't, the psychologist can work that out for us later, whether I'm Satan or Jesus to them. But when Satan—not Je- St. Saint Jesus, St. George— <laughs> When St. George comes to merry old England, sent by the fairy queen to destroy the dragon, before he even engages in battle with the dragon, he rides into the city and the people are thrilled. They're, They're cheering. They're saying, our Savior has come, even though he hasn't done battle yet. But he's there to say, yes, I've been sent by the fairy queen. I will destroy the dragon. I'm not going to stop until my task is done. And by the way, he didn't find out that, well, dragons aren't so bad once you get to know them. Or, yeah, they can be kind of useful if you learn how to train them. No, he he fights the dragon. The dragon tries to kill him. He wins in the end. A good old-fashioned fairy tale. Jesus is here to fight the dragon. Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy, he saved us. He called us with a holy calling not in virtue of our works, but in virtue of his own purpose and the grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought light and immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death and brought light and immortality to light through the gospel. Similarly, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus himself took on our nature that he might taste death for everyone, taste it like spit it up and chew, or chew it up and spit it out, taste death for everyone, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject, there's that word subject, to lifelong bondage, slavery. Here's our champion. Here's our hero. And in our passage today, at the beginning and outset of his ministry, he is marching through Galilee proclaiming, I've come to take down the dragon. He declares war on the kingdom of evil, and the good news is now displacing and pushing back the evil news. Furthermore, Jesus is in a unique and special position to offer us good news, because over and above all of the prophets who came before him, he has a special stake in the good news. In order for him to proclaim the message of repentance, he knows that it will cost him his own life. Something, some of the prophets were martyred. But he knows that the price of our repentance is his death on the cross. That to call the crowds to repent is to know that in three short years, the crowds will be calling for his crucifixion. That for him to call them to die to their sins is for him the first step on a journey that ends in his literal death for their sins. He knows it, unbeknownst to them, very beknownst. To Jesus. He knows exactly what this message will cost him. It's a pricely proclamation, but he's glad to do it. He deems it worthy. That's our treasure. That's the good news. What's the turning? If repentance is to turn around and discover a treasure that we did not know we had lost, let's talk about the turning. So imagine for a minute a compass, okay? So picture a compass. It's 360 degrees all around. If you were to go on an expedition, say to the North Pole, compass would be very handy. You've got true north, you just follow it all the way to the North Pole. But now if you have a final destination, like the North Pole, then a compass really only has two directions, not 360, two. There's true north and all the other ones. One of them is the right way to go. Every other one is the wrong way to go. Now, I I did my own calculations, and uh, I, I was in honors math all the way up through freshman, sophomore year of high school. So in my own calculations, if you were to set out from Chicago on an expedition for the North Pole, and yet you were one degree off, even if you walked in a straight line, but you were one degree off of true north, you would end up about 50 miles off course. So if you're looking for Santa's workshop, you're not going to find it. 50 miles, that's a long way off, and that's just one degree. And it's a reminder to us that those of us who have been Christians— for a long time. We need to hear this message of continual repentance and renewal just as much as those who could be hearing it for the first time. Let's go back to my buddy Nate, because I was talking to him on the phone a little while ago, and I asked him to send me a few sentences of, all right, well, what has your life been like since your conversion? This is what he said. Well, first, repentance and conversion were not a struggle. It was really easy. It was like a natural reflex. But in the 16 years since my conversion, I have more or less constantly struggled between wanting control and surrendering to God, between independence from God and dependence on God, between self-centeredness and self-denial, between immediate gratification and eternal perspective. And he says the contrast seems extreme because it is so fundamental. And if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time, you can relate to that yeah, it's a struggle. It doesn't take long for us to get off of north, and we need the inner compass of the Holy Spirit to direct us to convict our hearts and to say, this is true north. And that happens when we are in the scriptures, or when in prayer the Lord gently convicts our heart, or we see in the example of a brother or sister the image of Christ, and we say, I I want that, and I'm not there. Perhaps you're reading in the Gospels one day and you see where Jesus says to his disciples, yeah, I'm the king of the universe, but I came not to be served like all other kings. In fact, I came to serve. And the gentle conviction rests on your heart and say, yeah, that's not my attitude. That's not how I feel in my family. I would rather be served. That's not how I feel at work. I don't want to serve others. I don't want to be the servant of others at work or in my other relationships. And so when that happens, that is an opportunity right there to come again, to repent, to turn, to let the Lord soften our hearts. But maybe you're here today and you're like, one degree, three degrees, a few degrees. How about 180 degrees off? How about like, I don't even know where my compass is. I'm lost. And it's important for you to know. It is so important for you to know that if you're feeling lost— Your sins are are too big for God to handle, that he has forgotten about you, he's set you aside. That is not true. That's a lie of that dragon, that stinking devil. The truth is actually what Jesus says, that I'm a doctor, he says. I've come for the sick, not the healthy. I've come to call the unrighteous to repentance, not the righteous. I have come to seek and to save The lost. If you don't know where your compass is, if you feel lost, let me show you where your compass is. That is true north. You turn there and you will find that treasure that you did not even know you'd lost. The words of the prophet Micah speak beautifully about the Lord's heart for forgiveness. He says, Who's a God like you, forgiving our sins, looking over our transgressions for the people of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Do you hear that? He doesn't say, I will tread you underfoot and cast you into the depths of the sea. He says, I will take your sins. I will tread those underfoot. I will cast those in the depths of the sea. He does not retain his anger. He delights in in mercy, There's a profound misunderstanding about the nature of God. It affects us to some degree greatly. It affects the world out there immensely. It is this idea that God is angry. He's angry, and he's out to get you. And that is not true. When the Bible speaks about the anger of the Lord, that anger is fleeting. It says he's slow to anger. He does not retain his anger. In fact, as soon as we repent the anger is gone. It dissipates. I love Isaiah 12. I love the Lord, for though he was angry with me, now he comforts me. Now he comforts me. He delights in mercy. Here's the thing. Most of the people in this room, we get that. We know that. It's the people out there that do not understand. And the Lord is sending us saying, tell them I'm not an angry God, that I'm a merciful God. Tell them I'm on their side. They need someone to tell them. And if they want to know how to repent, and if we want to know, okay, what does repentance look like? What does it mean to repent? The Bible is really clear on this, very helpful, super clear. This is repentance, to call on the name of the Lord. That's how you do it. Call on the name of the Lord. All throughout the Psalms, the Psalms is saying, I called on the Lord, and he saved me from all my troubles, even the ones of my own doing. And isn't that true? I found that to be the case. Lord, have mercy on me. I know I made this mess. Would you get me out of it? I called on the name of the Lord. He delivered me from all my troubles. And the Lord says also throughout the Psalms, call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you. Call on the name of the Lord. And what the New Testament does is it says, yes, and let me be very specific, the Lord says, that name is Jesus. Call on the name of Jesus whenever you are in trouble, whether it's a one degree of repentance, whether it's 180 degrees of repentance. Last week, uh, Bishop Stewart talked about abortion, pretty heavy topic, and I want to reiterate what he says because it cannot be missed that if you've had an abortion, if you've supported abortion, if you've urged others to have abortion, if you are grappling with other such big sins as these, it does not matter whether it's 180 degrees or whether it's one degree. If you repent, if you call on the name of Jesus, you shall be saved. This is what the Bible promises. Everyone who calls on his name shall be saved. So what keeps us from repenting? What keeps us from that daily inner compass of the Holy Spirit resetting us on true north? What keeps us from doing it? Well, many things, but in a phrase, I would say hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is what keeps us from repenting. Well, what causes hardness of heart? Bitterness? Are you embittered? Are you bitter at someone else? Maybe they hurt you. Maybe you're bitter because you're jealous of them. Maybe you are bitter at God. Life isn't working out how you thought it should, and he's responsible. You are bitter at God. Bitterness creates hardness of heart. Discontentment, similarly, creates hardness of heart. And the stem of bitterness and discontentment, that great cause of hardness of heart, is ingratitude a lack of gratefulness. And this is something we all suffer from. We go through our days and our weeks profoundly ungrateful for all that we have received. But the simple heart is a grateful heart. The grateful heart is a humble heart. An ungrateful heart is a hard heart. Lack of forgiveness causes hardness of heart. Persisting in sin and disobedience, when that conscience, which is the mighty tool of the Holy Spirit for conviction, is telling us, hey, you're not on true north, and we consciously resist that. That causes a hardness of our heart. If we're closed-fisted with our money towards the Lord or towards others, that causes hardness of heart. If we have a suspicious attitude, we're distrustful of others, we fear others, we're overly guarded, that causes hardness of heart. Selfishness, Self-protection. All of these things cause hardness of heart. And when I was in prayer about this message and, and what is it that the Lord might want to do specifically in this moment here with us here, uh, I I feel that what He wants to do is give us an opportunity to come to Him and to say, "Jesus, soften my heart." So we're going to do that right now. We're actually going to use our imaginations to do that. So close your eyes. And in your imagination, I want you to picture Jesus, whatever he looks like to you. If he looks angry, try to change what you see, if possible. See him in gentleness coming towards you, and in his hands he holds clay, a lump of clay. That is your heart. Look at that lump of clay. Is it hard? Is it dry? Is it cracked? To what degree Is it hard and dry? And if you desire this morning, just simply now in your heart, say, Lord Jesus, I want you to soften my heart. And I want you to see in your imagination the Lord, his hands, fingers dripping with the water of the Holy Spirit, softening that clay, making it moldable, fashionable for his purposes. The Lord is here this morning, He wants us to soften our hearts. Well, actually, he wants us to give him permission to do that. You can open your eyes. As I said earlier, it's not so much we who are in here who who need to hear this message for the first time. We do. We do. But along with the treasure that we've talked about, along with the turning that, yes, we're experiencing again, hopefully, there is the telling. There is the telling. And I want to say, yes, they need to know, and they will see it in us. So as we, as we go forth from this place, as we're considering what does this message mean for me, consider in what ways does your life reflect a soft heart, In what ways are you going to be in positions to be able to tell others and draw others to the tender mercy of God? To be able to say, I don't don't know if you know this or not, but but God is not angry. Turn to him. There may be times where you may be even to pray for others in your life, that they would turn to the Lord. Pray in the name of Jesus. Let us keep that in mind. Amen.